So we're in a series. If, you, if you've missed, uh, this is the fifth and final week of the series, and I'm super excited to finish this thing out. And we've been doing this. We've been asking what we believe are the five most important questions that every human will ever have to ask repeatedly in their lifetime. And the reason we've been doing this is because great questions, when they get answered, lead to great decisions. And the tagline in this series, in case you guys have missed it, has been this, and we've been saying it over and over and over. It's better decisions, fewer what? Some of you, but good job. Better decisions, fewer regrets. Now listen, here's the truth. Regrets on this side of eternity are inevitable. We all have them, we're gonna have more, okay? But, but when we know what it looks like to ask the right questions, to get the right answers, we can make better decisions and we can mitigate the amount of regrets we have in this lifetime. Of course, regrets are inevitable, but they don't have to be substantial in our lives. And that's the goal. So we're getting into week five and I did what any preacher who I think's worth their weight in salt did when I heard the term uh, good decisions, fewer regrets, I went straight to Google and just typed in the word regrets. And I had a blast. I, I lost a lot of time that day, but I had a blast earlier this week. One of the things that came up was regrettable tattoos. And so the next hour of my life was blessed but ruined. I didn't get a lot done, but I saw some amazing things online. And I thought, hey, I felt, I'm not, I'm not proud of this, but I felt a little better about myself and my life at the expense of some of these people that had these tattoos. And I thought, you know what? I think you need to fill that as well. So put the first one up there. We'll just start with the word regrets, or in this case, regret. No regret, right? To which I say, are you sure no regrets? Like not even a letter maybe of regret? Like, okay, put the next one up. Regret knowing. <laughs> now, that skin, let's talk for a minute. I was trying to be gracious about this, this guy's approach. That skin looks very Caucasian, right? If it was, if it was Latino, I'd give him grace because it'd be like, regret knowing. I get that. Like, do you, that would be fair. Th- that dude's white though, so there's no excuses here. Put the next one up. This guy got cocky and it bit him in the butt, right? Or in the back. <laughs> I'm Amsom. Not at spelling, you're not. Put that next one up. I loved this one, too cool for school. (laughs) To which I read that and went, but are you? I actually think that might be best for you. Why don't you hop on that little bus and get back to school? Let's learn to spell, all right? I'm horrible at spelling, by the way. I had no right judging that guy. I just don't spell on my body, okay? So, all right, put the next one up. Knowledge is power. Tell me more. What is this knowledge thing? Because I want power, right? That's for life, guys. That's regrettable. Okay, move on. Next one. I love this one. This guy fresh off the concert, right? Remember Metallica in the 90s? Nothing else matters. Well, he put Melodica, nothing else mattress. <laughs> have another one, bro, right? <laughs> this, this guy I have a, a huge heart for. He meant well, but he went with the double negative. Never don't give up, right? I don't know why I went Southern there. My wife would, sorry, but, but never, like that's, that's a double negative, right? So, so basically on your bicep, you put always give up. Okay, great. Now, don't put the next one up yet because this is my shameless plug for next week. We're starting a new series, and it's a relationship series. And I get the privilege of being back another week with you guys to kick that one off, and we're going to talk about this holy institution that we call marriage. And here's what I know about regrets and relationships. There is nothing on planet Earth where the regret goes deeper and the damage goes wider than when we have regrets with relationships. They sting the most, do they not? They're the most personal. Why? God created us simply to be in relationship with him and then with each other. 
And so we want to know how that goes right. So you're not going to want to miss next week. And if you don't miss, and if you do miss next week, you're going to have a chance to end up getting a tattoo someday like this girl. I call this tattoo the woman at the well. (laughs) I regret Joseph. I regret Luca. Chris was a cheater. Stefan's horrible human. And now I'm God pray for me. James is working, right? Like, like that, that's permanent right there. Okay. So you're not going to want to miss our relationship series next weekend. Okay. So here's what we've been saying. And I'll just say it one more time. Life is all about decision-making. The quality of your life and the direction of your life are completely determined by the decisions that you make. And good decisions require good questions. And so I just, as we jump into week five, I want to give you a fair warning. This is a beautiful question we're going to ask. And when you answer it and act on it appropriately, there is a degree of blessing that you can't get from any other thing in life. But this is the hardest question that we've had in the first five weeks. And here's why. It's the hardest because this question doesn't have anything to do with your life. And making your life better. It has everything to do with making other people's lives better. So here's the question. You ready for it? It's simply this. What does love require of me? That's it. What does love require of me? And this is a big question. And so, of course, where are we going to go? We're going to go to our rabbi. We're going to go to the king of kings, the Lord of lords. We're going to go to our savior, right? Our teacher, Jesus Christ. We're about to see in John chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, you can go there. If you don't, don't worry, it'll come up on the big screens. But in John chapter 13, Jesus is going to answer this question explicitly. He not only answers it verbally, but he answers it with his actions, okay? His words move to actions, and then he says, now that you've seen me do this, spoiler alert, he goes, now I want you to do the same thing. John chapter 15, or 13, excuse me, is this famous moment where Jesus in, in the last supper he would ever have with his closest friends and confidants, his 12 disciples, he gets humbly down on his knees and he washes their feet. And the implications are staggering. Jesus is giving us a master class in the question we're asking in week five. What does love require of me? So let's do this. Let's read John 13 verse one. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil, here he goes, the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now, listen to this, because this is key to answering the question, what does love require of me? And even more importantly, then how do I do it? How do I have the grace to love that kind of, that, that kind of way? Jesus, this is key, knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and he knew that, listen to this, he, he knew where he had come from, and he knew where he was returning. That's huge. Let, let, me, let, me, let me read this one again, because we can't miss this. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God, and was returning to God. And here's why this is huge. Jesus, we're going to see in a minute, does something otherworldly. He does something that was unprecedented in the ancient world that had never historically been recorded as doing again. He washes the feet of his subordinates. That might not sound like a big deal now. You, if you ever worked for a good boss or a, a kind leader and you've been just, just served by them in ways where you're thinking, no, I'm the employee. I should be serving you like that. You've seen that. But in the ancient world, dignitaries, kings, governors, 
very wealthy, astute business owners, they would never be caught dead washing the feet of their subordinates. It was an act of humiliation. It was something that would strip them, or so they thought, of their dignity. It was something they thought would take value away from their title, value away from their authority. Uh, it, they, they, they saw it as an act of weakness to get on their hands and knees and do something that was reserved for the slaves to do. And, and Jesus, spoiler alert, we're, we're about to see he's as a rabbi, which would also technically make him ceremonially unclean. He's about to take off his outer garment, which was completely undignified, for a rabbi to do, make himself ceremonially unclean, which was very inconvenient for a rabbi to do, and he was about to stoop to the lowest position in the room, not the slaves in that room who would typically do it. In fact, I read a commentary uh, years ago about this where they said a lot of Jewish uh, masters and slaves had really uh, beautiful relationships. They were very close. They were like family. And so when dignitaries would, would, would have a good relationship with their slaves, they wouldn't even let their slaves wash the feet at dinner parties. They would actually hire, ready for this, lowly, lowly Gentiles to come and do the feet washing because it was that low of an act. And here the creator of feet, <laughs> the creator of life, the giver and sustainer of breath, we're going to see in a few minutes, is about to do something that humiliating. And he's about to do something that undignified. So the question is this, because he's going to say, when I do that, I want you to now go, go do that for the world. That's what love requires of you. He's going to answer that question with action. But the question we got to ask first is, what gave him that kind of grace? What gave him that kind of mindset how could he have such a heightened human consciousness to, to, to buck the system? There's a theologian named D.A. Carson. He's a, a preeminent New Testament theologian. He's still alive, and he researched this to the nth degree. And he said, there is nothing recorded in the ancient world in any nation where any dignitary ever before John chapter 13 did anything like Jesus did. Something that lowly to take off his garment and wash the feet of his subordinates. One even who would actually betray him and be the catalyst for his death, knowing that Judas would be that, predicting that Judas would do that. He still chose, which doesn't even make sense to my mind, he still chose to get on his hands and feet and clean the feet of the person that was going to be the catalyst for sending him to the cross. You see what's happening? And here's the answer. How could Jesus do something so humbly like that? And how can we follow in his footsteps? It goes back to what I read. Jesus knew the authority God had given him. So, so I'll say it this way. Jesus, number one, knew whose he was. Number two, because he knew whose he was, you ready for this? He knew who he was. When you really know your identity in God and in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden these type of radical type acts of agape love don't look so radical anymore. To the world they do. Shocking to the world. But Palm Creek, listen to me. This is what we have precisely been called to as disciples of Jesus. This is what, as Paul said, makes us aliens and strangers in this world. I grew up being taught all the time with that verse that it just meant you don't go to those movies and you don't listen to that music and you dress different than them and you can't go and do what they do and you better do what they don't do and you, we don't talk like this, we don't hang out with them. And listen to me, I'm not saying there's not a time to talk about appropriate ethics behaviorally. That does matter. But when it comes to being aliens and strangers, where the world takes notice and recognizes that there's something different about us, it's not about your personal behavioral ethic, it's about your ethic when it comes to how you treat the world. 
when they least deserve it. This is what makes us different. This is what makes us truly aliens and strangers is this thing called agape love. It's this love that's not predicated upon feeling. It's not predicated upon uh, if it's smart or safe or easy or just. It's this, it's this love that bypasses every bit of your intellectual common sense and for the sake of other people at the height of human rebellion, you choose to make yourself low and wash their feet. If Jesus was willing to wash the feet of the one who would be the reason he got put on the cross, how much more do we have a responsibility to love people in our life who have done much less worse than that, right? This is what love requires of us. Jesus knew whose he was, he knew who he was because of that, and then what did it say? He knew where he had come from, and he knew where he was going. We have a term for, for this type of, of stuff. It's called your, your identity in Christ, right? Like, you can't be spiritually strong and mature. You can't make God-honoring good decisions that lead to fewer regrets if you don't have a strong identity in whose you are, who you are, where you came from, where you're going. Can I remind you where you came from? King David knew who he was in Christ. King David knew his place with God. And he did a lot of incredible things for the kingdom, right? And King David said this in Psalm 139. He said that he was fearfully and wonderfully made. He knew where he came from. He said in his mother's womb, it was actually God himself who was brilliantly knitting King David together. The same with you. You were an image bearer from the minute you took your first breath, an image bearer of the living God. That is who you are. You are deeply and wholly and perfectly loved by God. That's where you came from. And can I remind you, after you breathe your last, where you are going forever, if you have put your faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ, you're going to a place where there's no death, there's no mourning, there's no crying, there's no pain, there's no COVID, there's no masks, there's no social distancing, Unless you're an introvert, then I'm sure God's happy to let you be your introvert self in your own little plot of land somewhere up in heaven. He's cool with that, whatever. We love you, but whatever. There's no wars. There's no killings. There's no abuse for anyone to work through anymore. There's no temptation towards sin or sin. You will live in a perpetual, eternal state of shalom, divine and heavenly bliss. Joy will be yours effortlessly. Peace will be yours effortlessly. Love of neighbor will be effortless. Love of self will be effortless. You are gonna be in the tangible, physical, overwhelming, undefinable presence of God forever. So on this side of the grave, Jesus says, as my disciple, here's your cross that you have to carry, so carry it well. I'm gonna ask you to wash feet of the unwashable. I'm gonna ask you not when people have earned it or even deserved it. I'm gonna ask you to get low for the sake of bringing other people up when they least deserve it. Do one to the least of these is kingdom type language, right? So Jesus washes the feet, he gets out the towel, and let, let's start with, uh, we don't know the order he did it, but let's start with Thomas. What's Thomas oftentimes famous for in the scriptures? Doubt. Doubt needs its feet washed by Jesus. If not, you know what doubt becomes? Skepticism. And you know what skepticism does to your faith? It causes you to run in the opposite direction of the cross. Jesus, unlike us, is very unafraid of Thomas's doubt. 
Read Jesus' response to Thomas when he says, unless I see the scars on his hand, I'm not going to believe. When he had been with him already, seeing miracles for three and a half years, Jesus is so utterly gracious to him and says, okay, come look. There's no arguing. There's no jockeying. There's no reprimanding. There's no, oh, how horrible of you, you entitled little spoiled punk. You got to hang out with me for three and a half years, just 12 of you. You're one of the 12. Do you know what people would have killed to have been in your position? And yet, and yet you still want proof that I got crucified a few days ago? Like, I'd be like, you're out of here. You're done. You're, you're, you're next, right? Jesus just lovingly gets undignified to restore some dignity in Thomas's doubt. He gets down, and, and in the middle of his doubts, he just starts washing his feet. Why? It's not just this, this flippant act of grace to go, hey, I don't care about doubt. Doubts, just keep on in your, what? no, no, no. This is him going, hey, doubts are inevitable. So if you walked in here and that, that's one of your biggest struggles right now, Jesus is wash, happy to wash your feet in the middle of your doubts. But you know what he, he knows that kind of grace will do? Instead of getting that doubt to lead to skepticism and cause you to move further from the cross, he knows that when he, the creator, is willing to graciously wash the feet of doubters, that they'll press into the cross in their doubts instead of away from it. That's the true power of grace. It's not some flippant indifference to human behavior that's dangerous. It's actually God's plan to, to, to awaken you out of that indifference. He gets down on his hands and knees and he, he washes the feet of, 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 of these two uh, guys named James and John who were his disciples. They had the coolest tag team wrestling name ever, right? The Sons of Thunder. Why? These guys were competitive. I'm like that. I get that. These guys were intense. In their, in their competitive and intense nature, do you know what they were always doing? They were always jockeying for position. They're always trying to push themselves up, usually at the expense of others. There's even this moment after the supper we're reading about where they start fighting and they're the catalyst for the fight about who's the greatest in the kingdom and Jesus has to give them another lesson about that. And he uses little kids to do it. Okay, you coaches will appreciate this. Here's James and John. Their, their mother, because coaches, you know when the parents come and tell you how to do your job, right, with the kids, and you're just like, please stop. But their mom comes to Jesus and says, hey, could, could my boys sit on the right hand and the left hand of the throne of God? Like, <laughs> there's billions of people on earth. Could my two boys do that, right? Coach, put them in. Like, come on, coach, let them be the stars, right? And Jesus is so gracious to his mother in his tone, and he says, no. <laughs> you don't know what you ask, woman, Right? But this was James and John, and can I just tell you, uh, I don't know about you, but I am a mixed bag of some beautiful purity and some really poor motives. You, you may be better than me, but this is just me telling on me. If I'm honest, I'm still a mixed bag of hypocrisy and duplicity. I have some very pure and beautiful motives before Christ, I know that. But you know what I also have sometimes creep up in my life? Some really bad motives. And a lot of times I want to jockey for position and push someone down so I can be lifted up. And that is not kingdom behavior. That is not what love requires of me. Jesus, though, gets down on his hands and knees and graciously starts to wipe the feet of James and John. You know what he's doing? He's ruining them in the most beautifully divine way. Because every time those motives creep up and every time they want to be first at the expense of someone else being last, they're going to be ruined by the fact that the creator of the universe, less than two days before he'd be crucified, washed those impure motives' feet and did it graciously. See, that's the power of grace. It would keep them in their impure motives, bringing them back to the cross instead of doubling down and having a bunch of regretful decisions. He does it for Matthew, the former fraud and thief. He does it for Peter. 
And here's what's cool about Peter. Peter's biggest sin he would ever commit was after Jesus was gone, right? Like after Jesus washed his feet. Jesus washes his feet, and before he washes his feet, do you know what he predicts about Peter? You're gonna deny me three times in the next 24 hours. And washes his feet. Like, like preemptively, I'm going to show you this awe-inspiring degree of love. So in the next 24 hours, when you do the most regrettable thing in your life, you're gonna come home because you know my heart for you. I said you would do it, you did it, and I still got low to my subordinate Peter and I washed your feet. I don't even have a compartment to talk about Judas. It makes no, it offends every intellectual sense I have. Every emotional sensibility I have is offended that Jesus chose to wash his betrayer's feet. I don't get it. All I can say to you is this. We have a responsibility to sit in the awe and the conviction that Jesus then says, go and do what I've done for you. This is what love requires. Jesus would say in another passage, love your what? Enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Wash the feet of your enemies. Let's go on to read the rest of the narrative and then we'll wrap it up and make a point. Verse six, he gets to Peter finally, who said to him, and I would have said the same thing, Lord, you're gonna wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize, Pete, what I'm doing right now. He says, but later you'll understand. Pete's going, you can't wash my feet. We now know that's never happened in the history of the ancient world. No authority figures wash the feet of a subordinate and Peter is self-aware enough to go, you don't know where these feet have been. You don't know what these feet are capable of. You can't wash my feet, Jesus. I have to wash your feet, right? Doesn't that make sense? But did you hear what Jesus said? He says, you don't realize right now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. And this is the essence of the gospel. Grace never makes sense on paper on the front end. We, by faith, love people when it's scary. We radically love people when it makes no sense on paper. We forgive people who don't deserve your forgiveness because you were forgiven when we didn't have our forgiveness deserved, right? This is what we do. And you will never know the fullness of your identity in Christ. You will never come into it if you don't, by faith, choose to love people even when it makes no sense on paper. This is what agape love is. It bypasses feeling, it bypasses emotion, it bypasses fear and insecurity and ego and pride and says, you trust me in obedience to wash the feet of the people who you're really, really, really mad at right now, who hurt you. And you trust that on the other end of that incredibly difficult act of love, there is gonna be a blessing for you that you will never one time in your life regret that you made that choice to love that radically. I believe the writer of Hebrews said it about Jesus, for the joy set before him, eventually he what? He endured the cross. This was Jesus saying, this doesn't make sense on the front end, but I know there's something more fruitful and beautiful and redemptive on the other end, so I'm going to the cross. And then he invites us in to that. Peter said this, Jesus, you're never gonna wash my feet. I love Pete. He's like, absolutely not. Jesus' answer is this. This is the gospel. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Translation, grace is your only option in the kingdom of God. It's the only currency that will, will get you in and keep you in. There's no plan B, there's no plan C, there's no plan D, there's no plan E, and I could go all the way to Z. It is, it is a, an, an unbelievable, amazing gift 
is your only entry point into the kingdom. It's by faith saying, I just receive your feet washing, knowing that these feet have been some places. These feet are full of some regrets. And I'm gonna let you, my creator, get down and humbly wash my feet. I'm just gonna receive it like a little child. Jesus says, unless, unless you let me give you grace right now, unless you let me do this lowly thing, unless you let me become undignified so I can restore dignity back to you, Peter, you have no part with me, and I love him. He instantly changes. He goes, all right, all right then, God. Uh, wash, don't just wash my feet, but wash my hands, wash my head. He was probably my belly, uh, my legs. Jesus like, stop, I get it. You're, Pete, you're already clean. We've already had this talk. You're clean. He says, those who have had a bath only need to wash their feet. Their whole body's clean, and he says, Pete, you're clean. Then he looks at Judas probably and says, but not every one of you, for he knew who was gonna betray him and that's why he said not every one of you is clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now, are you ready for this? We're answering the question this week, what does love require of me? Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet here it is. You should also wash one another's feet. And then he says something huge. Implications through the roof. I have set an example, excuse me, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Andy Stanley calls this, pastor in Atlanta calls this the platinum rule. You guys all know the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them what? Do unto you. Love your neighbor as what? yourself, okay? That's the golden rule, but what's next level? The platinum rule. Here's why the golden rule is beautiful, but there's even a next level rule. is because you loving your neighbor as yourself is still broken and flawed in some way because you don't love yourself the way you're supposed to. You don't yet fully love you the way God loves you. We're on a mission for that. We're working on that. We're growing in that. We're being sanctified towards that as, as we grow more and more each year, yes, but if you're to love your neighbors yourself, but you're not fully able to love yourself, then guess what? You're still not gonna give your, your neighbor what they really deserve. So what's Jesus say? Don't just love them the way you love yourself. Love them the way I've loved you. That's platinum. That's next level. Because the way he's loved us is perfect. It's not broken. It's not flawed. There's no ego involved. There's no pride involved. There's no insecurity involved. There's no sin involved of his love. It's flawless and it is altogether otherworldly and holy. And he says, now the goal is to love your neighbor just not as much as you, but to love your neighbor as much as I have loved you. He says, very truly I tell you, band, you can come up. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And then here's the reward. Here's the beautiful thing. This should excite you. This is the motivator right here. Jesus looks at him and says, now that you know these things in Plum Creek, we just got reminded of these things. We just re-upped on a conviction about what real love looks like. Now that you know these things, Plum Creek, ready? You will be blessed if you do them. That word in the Greek, I've said it before, I'll say it again. It means happy, fortunate, to be envied if you do that kind of radical love. I want blessing for me and my family as much as God will possibly be willing to pour out on me in this lifetime. I covet the blessing of God. I think you do too, or you wouldn't be here today. I deeply want blessing for you and your family as much as I really want it for me and my family. I deeply want every single person within the sound of my voice, all you watching at home in the overflow room, I deeply and desperately want blessing for you. And Jesus says the highest form of blessing 
spiritual maturity, human consciousness, is when you can love this kind of radical way. He says, go and do it. And I don't think Jesus would ask us to do one thing that he doesn't grace us to do. Don't you agree? Just wouldn't, it wouldn't be kind. It wouldn't be appropriate. It wouldn't be right. Jesus doesn't ask us to go and do one thing that he won't grace us and prepare us and be with us and give us the power to do. True love. What does love require me? True love is at its best when words move to actions. That's why Jesus didn't just sit there at dinner and teach him. He actually took off his garment and he got on his hands and knees and he showed him actions. Disciples of Christ, I wrote in my notes, carry a Bible or the truth in one hand. But listen to me, disciples of Christ carry a towel in the other hand. There was this group of people called the Pharisees and do you know what they did that cost them deeply and hurt a whole bunch of people and tried to undermine and take out of God's people, Israel, a beautiful religion? They carried this everywhere and they knew it backwards and forwards and they had it memorized and they could speak Genesis, Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They could quote it verbatim. No one knew this thing better than them but you know the mistake they made? You know the big regret the Pharisees made? They never in the other hand picked up one of these. This thing was always used by them as a weapon to maintain their authority and their position and their stature and their wealth and their power. And Jesus's, Jesus's, his, his being in their presence alone started to dismantle that, which is why they were the catalyst to crucify him. Because they thought that this was to be used to make it further in life at the expense of other people. See, James says this about the Bible, and we have to be real careful. James is Jesus' brother who lived with them his whole life. He would become the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And James said this, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Pick up a towel and do what it says. Jesus just told us what to do. See, the truth without a towel actually becomes a huge indictment on your life. It brings deception into your heart. Some of the meanest, quote unquote, Christians on planet earth know this thing, can recite this thing, can shoot verses at people like bullets better than anyone on planet earth. They can outbehave all of us when it comes to, to external ethics and purity. And you know what? They never pick up a towel because this thing was never to learn to love people more for them. It was always learned to build their kingdom more. And the only purpose of this book is to motivate you, instruct you, and teach you what it looks like to pick up the towel. See, the truth without the towel is deadly. This book, without this in the other hand, is when the church of Jesus Christ gets a huge black mark with humanity and does our Lord and Savior Jesus and his cross a huge disservice. Here, here, here's what I wrote in my notes, that this, this towel serving other people, even when they don't deserve it, it is the metabolic system that gets this truth metabolized into our spirits. See, this right here represents nutrition for your spirit, this, this truth. It represents nutrition. This is why we read it. It's the bread of life. It's the living water. It feeds your spirit. But what happens when you eat and eat and eat and eat and feed and feed and feed, but your metabolic system doesn't work? 
you just get puffier and puffier and puffier and puffier and puffier. I've been there, done that, right? Paul said it this way. Knowledge without a towel puffs up. Love builds up. When these two things, these two things are, are husband and wife. Do you understand that? We read this so we serve the world better. And we love the world better. That's the whole purpose and goal of the towel. I love to go to the gym. I love to work out. It's like free medicine for me. Endlessly knowing this and never holding this in the other hand is like eating endless amounts of protein and never going and working out. You you puff up. You don't build up. But man, when these two are in a healthy marriage, the truth in the towel, that's when real fruit and real beauty starts to take place in your life and mine. And I want that for every single one of us. We're not just people of the truth. Jesus just showed us we're people of the towel. This thing right here is the highest manifestation that this thing right here through the power of the Holy Spirit is doing its job in your life and in my life. May we, Plum Creek, be people of not just truth, but people of the towel because that is what Jesus and what love requires of us. Will you guys stand? I'm gonna pray and we're gonna worship for just a few more minutes that we have together.